Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 26, You Can't Help Getting Older. On 13th of October 2021, Blue Origin's space mission NS-18 launched from Texas. Amongst its passengers was a 90-year-old man, well known to many of us. He was William Shatner. I'd imagine almost everyone with the TV has heard Shatner's voice introducing the world of space and the unquenchable desire to explore in the intro to Star Trek, be it the original 60s TV shows or the movies of the 70s and 80s. For many, his portrayal of James T. Kirk was the first time that we saw what a space commander would look and sound like. Manned missions to the moon stopped in the early 70s, and NASA missions since then have had a much greater control over the public personalities of their astronauts, with an emphasis on science and education rather than story and adventure. That's all fine, but we do need some space buccaneers from time to time. William Shatner was that and now he had the opportunity to become one in real life. Strapped into the RSS first step capsule, he felt last minute nerves, not helped by reports of an engine anomaly, soon fixed. In subsequent interviews, he talked about the feeling as they took off, the G's pressing into his chest and his body, the absolute curiosity to know what lay ahead in the great void of the universe. Shatner later wrote about how he'd always loved the mystery of the universe, In his words, all the questions that have come to us over thousands of years of exploration and hypotheses. He had expected that going to space would help him connect to all things living. Quote, being up there would be the next beautiful step to understanding the harmony of the universe. But he didn't get what he expected. In his words, I discovered that the beauty isn't out there. It's down here with all of us. Leaving that behind made my connection to our tiny planet even more profound. It was among the strongest feelings of grief I've ever encountered. The contrast between the vicious coldness of space and the warm nurturing of Earth below filled me with overwhelming sadness. What William Shatner experienced is known as the overview effect, and it's quite common amongst astronauts. The writer Frank White named the concept in 1987, saying, quote, There are no borders or boundaries on our planet, except those that we create in our minds or through human behaviours. All the ideas and concepts that divide us when we're on the surface begin to fade from orbit and the moon. The result is a shift in worldview and in identity. Imagine being 90 years old and having such a profound existential moment. Imagine being 90 years old and going into space. Imagine being any age and understand the physical stresses and strains on the human body that being rocketed into darkness will exert. Our subjects this episode may not be 90 years old, and the stresses and strains may be a bit more land-based. Perhaps even the existential crises are a bit more modest. However, if someone can go into space at the age of 90, what does that mean for our understanding of age, human physicality, and sporting achievement at the highest level?
The title of this episode is part of a quote from the American comedian George Burns. In full, it goes, You can't help getting older, but you don't have to get old. The deep dive this episode is about ageing. What happens to biathletes as they get older? What about the rest of us? The thing that got me thinking about age was the performance last weekend of some of our male veterans, particularly in the 20-shot pursuit race. Simon Edda, age 40, Yakov Fak, age 36, and Andres Rastoguyevs, age 35, all shot 20 out of 20 in that race and earned themselves great results. The other thing to note about the racing from Rupolding is that it was absolutely fantastic. Everything was competitive. We had sprint finishes, groups skiing together around the last lap, experienced winners, up-and-coming new stars from multiple nations. It was a joy. It also helped to have lovely blue skies and great snow to look at on our TV screens, a welcome relief after the grey days of Ober- Oberhof. So let's start by looking back to Rupolding and seeing what happened. In an unusual but effective scheduling choice, we started with the relays. Relays are such a long game. And looking back at my notes now, you can see the ebb and flow of each race, and yet it still came down to the final leg. In the women's race, it was France who prevailed, from Sweden, with Germany in third, and a great fourth place for Italy. We had some wonderful returns to form. The Czech women had a good result, and the Canadians had some of the best shooting. Unfortunately, early problems on the range for Norway couldn't be fixed as the race progressed. It was a real shame for them, as their emerging team has a lot of potential. Don't count them out when we get to the World Championships. The race itself came down to a group of three entering the final shoot. Julia Simon for France, Elvira Erberg for Sweden, and Hannah Kebinger of Germany. Julia did what she does so often these days, five out of five in a high-pressure final shoot. This is something that Martin Foucault always seemed to be able to do, and Julia's figured out the mojo to do it consistently too. Elvira Erberg had to be more patient. She doesn't have the magic that Julia has when it comes to fast standing shooting, but she was perhaps more confident that she could chase down the gap on the snow. She hit her five, but came out 14 seconds behind. Hannah Kebinger, the least experienced of the three, and in front of a very partisan home crowd, missed two, but still brought Germany home for a great podium finish. In the end, France won by eight seconds. Julia having plenty of juice left to bring it home. The men's relay was much more entertaining than you might expect. The Norwegian team of Ligrid, Dale Schäfdal, Taye Bo and Christiansen was a great blend of accuracy, speed, experience and reliability. Before the race it wasn't so much a question of whether they would win but by how much. There was a standout performance early on, particularly from Campbell Wright of the USA, who went out and skied with the big guys shot 10 out of 10, and handed over in third. That was stunning stuff against the likes of Ligrid, Perot and Strello. France, and particularly Sweden, struggled early on and dropped back. Sweden had a bit of a disaster, to be honest. You had an eclectic mix of nations up front for a while. Germany and Norway, along with the USA and Kazakhstan. The second leg saw some of the angry puppy races on track. Dale for Norway, Jacqueline for France clawing back time and seeing if they could make it work on the range. The USA, Austria and Germany hung on at the front as the fast guys made up time and then lost it. But by the third leg, a bit of normality had been resumed, with Norway, France and Germany out front. 
the good shooting nations, Austria, Switzerland, Slovenia, were making progress behind them, but it was going to come down to the big three. And it was Taille Beau, aged 35, who shot brilliantly. France and Germany ended up on the penalty loop, and Norway had about 40 seconds lead when handing over for the final leg. Christensen did his best to make it interesting with a couple of misses in the standing shoot, but it was comfortable in the end. Germany managed to stay the most calm and came home second, and there was a ski race for third between France and Italy. Tommaso Giacomel of Italy had the legs to beat Quentin Fionmaillet of France, and more about Giacomel to come. The women's sprint was a real mishmash of performances. The one person who was determined and unruffled from the start was Ingrid Landmark-Tandrevold. She went off in bib three, shot clean, and then sat patiently at the end while so many others struggled on the range. The Erbergs, Justine Brézard-Boucher and Julius Simon all had bad days. The super-consistent Lisa Vitozzi shot clear came in third. Lou Jaminot showed that she's well and truly back from illness with a fourth. And the often overlooked Swedes, Mona Brawson and Lynn Person, both shot clear. Brawson got a brilliant second place, with Person in seventh. Oh, and I, I mentioned Elvira Erberg having a bad day. She shot eight out of ten, but still managed to finish fifth. Youth and ski speed do go together. In the women's pursuit, we saw an incredibly competitive race, with Lisa Vitozzi, Ingrid Tandrevold and Uni Arnekliev emerging from the pack and heading out of the final shoot together. For a while, it looked like Tandrevold's determination or Arnekliev's energy would be the deciding factor. Lisa had a dig early in the lap, but then dropped back a little. What we didn't realise is that she was playing a tactical race, taking a deep breath and waiting for the pace to pick up, and then pouncing in the final sprint. She took the win ahead of Tandrevold and Arnekliev. Across the biathlon community on social media, there was a collective shout of Lisa! There's so much love for her, especially because she had such a bad time on the range a couple of years ago. Whatever she did to get her shooting form back has been absolutely worth it. She was phenomenal in this race. On the men's side, we had more surprises. Sprints are quite hard to watch on TV sometimes. There's so much going on, and it's not always clear who's going well until quite late on. The TV coverage had to jump around, and that meant that we missed most of an incredible 10 out of 10 for Emilia Jacqueline. Such an achievement to get that done when he's been having some range issues too. We also missed most of the 9 out of 10 achieved by the Italian speedster Tommaso Giacomel. Stalder and Hartweg for Switzerland did what they do, hitting 10 and 9 respectively. But then it was a Norwegian show. Johannes Tingisbo was off form again. I heard something about headaches and I hope he's okay. Dale was fast but missed two targets. So it was the reliable guys, Christensen and Taillebo, who managed to hit 10 out of 10. And it was Christensen with the speed to take the win. Jacamel got a fantastic second place. He was the leader at the finish for a little while, and I don't think even he believed what he'd done. Taillebo came third. Jacqueline got a season's best fourth place, just running out of ski endurance on the final lap. If he can get the juices flowing in his legs again, he could be dangerous by the time we get to Novo Miesto. A big shout out again for America's Campbell Wright, who came in 12th. The women's pursuit had led to that collective shout of Lisa and a lot of euphoria. Surely the men's pursuit would be a bit dull in comparison? No, definitely not. 
Christensen had the early advantage with some lovely shooting, taking his time to, in the range to make sure of his targets. But it all started to go wrong in the stand, and after shoot four we had a group emerging together. Christensen, Dale, Johannes Tingisbo, and Emilien Jacqueline. Jacqueline had wobbled in the prone shoot, but skied himself back in and cleared all his standing targets while others faltered. It came down to a ski race, and we know who's fast this year, Johannes Dale. He burst out of the pack on the final climb, and no one could go with him. Christensen had enough in the tank to beat both a second, and Emilia Jacqueline looked absolutely spent crossing the line for fourth. Just Estrello of Germany gave the home crowd reason to cheer coming fifth after a sixth place in the sprint. Honestly, if you have some spare time and you didn't see the racing, go and seek it out. Even if you now know the results, the ebb and flow of the weekend's racing was amazing. You have to learn to be patient as a biathlon spectator. Leads that seem insurmountable can disappear in a heartbeat on the range, or get clawed back by a skier who has managed their energy levels all the way to the end. Rupolding gave us great crowds, great weather, and most of all, great racing. Rupolding also gave us those signature performances by some of the older biathletes. So let's jump into the topic of ageing, peak performance, and what happens to us as time passes. Biathlon Analytics crunched the data and found that biathletes score the most points when they're in their early 30s. It's a tricky one to work out. Most biathletes don't compete into their early 30s, particularly women. And it may be that the ones who do keep competing are the ones who have most success anyway. Similarly, the data for men is skewed by some very successful, very long-lasting biathletes, particularly Oleana Bjorndalen. But this first analysis suggests that biathletes have a sweet spot of point scoring when they get to their early 30s. Analysis by Faster Skier, looking at the performance of distance skiers rather than biathletes, suggested that the age of peak performance on the snow is 31 and a half years old for men and 32 for women. There's a fascinating research study by Guro Stromsoli and others looking through the life of a female biathlete. They tracked her training, performance and physiological statistics from the age of 17 to 33, an incredible study through time. Each year from the age of 17 to 28, our biathlete trained more hours and fired more shots. Her VO2 max increased up to the age of 27, to coincide with that increased training load most likely. After that, she actually reduced training hours and shooting, and refocused on more low and medium intensity training, rather than high intensity. She achieved her peak career performance between the ages of 31 and 33. This study was actually a repeat of a study into a male biathlete over a similar period. In this case, the biathlete did a lot more lower intensity training, and they were able to attract increased activity in the parasympathetic nervous system, that is, a reduction in heart rate and blood pressure. The female biathlete in the first study isn't named, while the male is pretty clearly Martin Foucard, who is well known for his incredibly low resting heart rate. In the female case study, there's an interesting sidebar about a period when she was maybe 21 years old and starting as a full-time biathlete. She followed training regimes which weren't designed for her and ended up seeing her performance drop off. Luckily, a move to the national development team meant that her training become, became much more customised. The change in training pattern for our female athlete also saw her doing more strength training, things like core strength, and less pure skiing. And a big season of shooting age 31 
paid off at the age of 32, when she had her highest ever number of World Cup podiums. What the research suggests is that as you get older, training is about quality and not quantity. We do know that adults physically decline as we age. In a typical adult, the wheels start to fall off after the age of about 30. Our VO2 max reduces by about 10% per decade after this age, although good training can reduce this to 5% per decade. This is because our maximal heart rate also comes down. A lower heart rate means less precious oxygen being pumped out to the muscles, lower VO2 max, and a decline in performance. That said, the ability of our muscles to actually use the oxygen that comes to them stays steady, not declining until we're in our 60s and 70s. So it's not the muscles that stop working, it's that the heart can't do what it used to do. If you're in a fast twitch type sport, one that's all about bursts of speed or strength like sprinting or weightlifting, then you're in for a nasty shock as you age, your fast twitch muscle fibres stop sparking like they used to. Fortunately for our biathletes, slower twitch fibres, the ones that support endurance racing, keep working for longer. The other relatively good news here is that your lactate threshold doesn't change too much. Another effect of ageing is that our bones start to lose calcium and other minerals becoming weaker. That makes us more susceptible to fractures and other injuries, although that's perhaps less of an issue in a non-contact sport. We also lose elasticity in our joints, reducing how much we can move, making us feel stiffer, and just generally making us less flexible and bendy than when we were younger. The other thing that gets harder is recovery. This means that not only does it take longer to recuperate from injury or a busy race weekend, but also that you can't train at the same intensity as before, which again reduces performance. Perhaps that's why we see people training smart, not hard, after a certain point. I've talked before about the phenomenon of overtraining and how the balance of energy in and out can get disturbed by doing too much. Perhaps the answer as we age is less is more. For an older athlete, a training programme needs to shift from just getting the kilometres done to more focused efforts, intervals, cross-training, active recovery such as swimming or yoga, and more sleep, which always sounds good to me. It's not all bad news. There are things that age does give you. In particular, the wisdom of experience. Older athletes are going to have a better idea of what works for them particularly if they're flexible to the changes that come with age. Perhaps those female athletes whose bodies have undergone massive change from pregnancy and childbirth are more able to adapt than most, finding new ways to train and compete in a body that maybe feels unfamiliar. If you're a man aged 35 and you're still training like you did when you were 17, maybe it's time for a change. Age helps in other ways too. The key components of success in the standing shoot are core stability and minimising sway. Basically, the more you can stand still whilst your heart beats at 180 per minute and your legs scream at you, the better your standing shoot is likely to be. And older biathletes are better at this, maybe just because of the practice they've had. There's a correlation between sway and shooting score, and older biathletes perform better when it comes to keeping themselves still. Shooting accuracy improves for everyone as you get older, but there's an extra bump for women in their standing shoot accuracy after the age of 29. This is an interesting one. It suggests that women have another step in improvement later in their careers. 
and reach a smaller differential between their prone and standing shoot percentages than men do. Some research also suggests that women see an increase in ski speed as they get older, which is interesting to consider when we look at how many champion biathletes, particularly from Germany, have retired in their early or mid-twenties. Who knows what Lara Dahlmeier could have gone on to at the age of 30. Another thing that older biathletes do better is to quieten the mind. Better shooting performance is associated with not thinking too much, getting rid of all the distractions. Brain waves of biathletes while shooting show patterns which suggest a decluttering going on. The verbal and analytical brain centres go into effective shutdown, and even visual attention is reduced. Everything becomes a focus on the target, and the body goes into automatic aiming mode, what often gets called flow in sporting literature. It's why someone like Johannes Tingisbo can shoot five out of five in a standing shoot so quickly. He's just not consciously thinking about it. Research from the Lithuanian Sports University, looking at competitors across the World Championships in 2011-2012, identified that biathletes shoot both more quickly and more accurately as they get older. The other good news is that eyesight tends to remain relatively stable from the age of about 20 well into your 30s. Often in competitive shooting, it's the oldest competitors who do best. It's only after about the age of 40 that age-related eyesight problems can occur. But don't mention that to Simon Ada, who's approaching his 41st birthday and who is still shooting 91% in the prone and 85% in the stand this year. Last but not least, research at the Mercator School of Management in Germany found that age diversity in relay teams was associated with better performance. That combination of youthful exuberance and veteran wisdom seems to create something quite powerful. Just ask the Norwegian men. There's a lot to look forward to this week as we head over the border to Italy and the beautiful venue of Antholz. This is a picture-perfect one, weather permitting, so I recommend you tune in, at least to look at some of the stunning mountains and wish you were there. Antholz is also a venue at altitude, which makes a difference to many biathletes. It will suit those who live or train at altitude and those who are a bit stronger on their skis. We have a change of programme. There's no sprint or pursuit this time. Instead, we have an individual race over a shorter than usual distance, perhaps because of the altitude. On Saturday, we have two relays and then two mass starts on Sunday. The solo races are all 20-shot races, so some of the pure sprinters might struggle. They're the people who can reliably shoot 10 out of 10, but not 20 out of 20. The schedule for the week, on Thursday the 18th of January at 1.20 in the afternoon UK time, we have the men's individual over 15 kilometres. On Friday the 19th of January at 12.40 UK time, we have the women's individual over 12.5 kilometres. On Saturday, we have both a single mixed relay at 11.55 and then a mixed relay at 1.45. And then on Sunday the 21st of January, we have a men's mass start at 11.30 in the morning and a women's mass start at 1.45 in the afternoon. It'll be very interesting to see who races in the relays on that middle day. The main competitors may want to be fresh for the mass starts on Sunday, but some people seem to thrive on more racing rather than less. Equally, teams may want to test different combinations of athletes, if they have big squads, to see what's going to work best for the World Championships. We'll also see some biathletes coming back to World Cup racing 
as an audition for those championships. The likes of Antonin and Gilon Gigona for France, who make a great single mixed relay team, and Idelien of Norway, a social media favourite. There's no sprint this weekend, as I say, so the racing favours those who can get close to hitting 20 out of 20. On the women's side, Lisa Vitozzi has been incredibly consistent all season and has shown speed, but may get nervous in front of the Italian crowd. Expect the French to perform well, particularly in the head-to-head -head mass start. And how about this being the moment for Francisca Preuss? She's been shooting really well all season and is definitely getting faster and faster. On the men's side, the German men were great the last time we were at altitude, so perhaps Strello or Naurath, although his shooting has fallen off a little. The Norwegians will always be around, but maybe there's a glimmer for Stalda of Switzerland. The Swedish men really need to get their shooting form back. It was not pretty last weekend, and it will need to improve a lot. They do have the speed, but that's not enough in this game. As always, you can watch the biathlon racing this weekend on Eurosport if you're in the UK, or on eurovisionsport.com. You will need to register on eurovisionsport.com, but it is free, and it seems to be available in most nations. One last thing. I started this episode talking about William Shatner in space, and it was quite thought-provoking. I thought I'd finish with another space adventure, and, given my love of mascots, it should be something fluffy. Back in the late 1960s, the Apollo moon missions had various names and nicknames. The Apollo 10 mission, the one that scoped out the landing sites for the more famous Apollo 11, nicknamed its command module Charlie Brown, and its lunar module Snoopy. Snoopy had long been associated with space travel, perhaps because he spends so much time looking up at the sky. And even today, the Silver Snoopy Award at NASA is given to employees and contractors who do awesome things. Snoopy went into space in 1990 on a Columbia mission and, more recently, was part of the Artemis I mission in 2019, a mission with no human crew which orbited the moon as part of the USAID's rekindled moon landing program. Snoopy wasn't just along for the ride, he acted as a zero-g indicator, floating around the Artemis cockpit when zero-g was reached. Snoopy travelled more than 1.4 million miles on his mission, and though smiling on his return, doesn't seem to have provided a quote, so we don't know if he experienced the same feelings as William Shatner. For the record, according to the Charles M. Schultz Museum, Snoopy is 55 human years old. Thank you for listening. You'll find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. I'll be away while Antholtz is on, so there won't be an episode immediately afterwards. I'll put some thoughts together when I get back, as well as building up to this season's World Championships, to be held in early February in Nova Mesto in Chechia. Please do follow us on Twitter, at skishootrepeat. Do get in touch to tell me what's right and what's wrong and also let me know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.